And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, Google Play, iTunes, Podbeam, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show. Today we have a lot to talk about. There's still a lot going on around the country when it comes to life and abortion. We're going to look at uh, what the New York Times has to say about that and kind of this new landscape. We're also going to look at uh, some uh, a study recently that was put out in a conversation on fathering, and, and in particular, fathering boys and what that looks like, even in a culture that uh, that refuses to say that there are different roles for, for boys and girls, men and women. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at a couple things that are happening around the country that, that I think we need to put our attention toward. But I want to start with, uh, again, the New York Times has a piece that called The New Landscape of the Abortion Fight. And uh, Kate Zernicki is the one that wrote this. And let's let's see what it has to say. It says this Supreme Court's reversal of the 50 year old decision in Roe v. Wade transformed the debate and politics around abortion in the United States, shifting battles to state courts and legislatures and galvanizing a fresh wave of voters in the midterm elections who turned out more forcefully than ever to make abortion rights a winning issue. While the terms of the abortion conflict have been set for decades, the results of the election so closely following the court's decision now have both sides reevaluating their strengths, weaknesses, and strategies. Heading into the new legislative sessions next year, supporters and opponents of abortion rights are girding for fresh combat with new ground rules, new opponents, and new battlefronts. Anti-abortion groups, of course, they can't say pro-life, they have to call us anti-abortion groups, are pulling back from ballot initiatives as a way to restrict abortion, having failed with those measures in Kansas, Kentucky, and Montana. Instead, they're pushing to reinforce abortion restrictions where they've had success or hold the majority in sympathetic court jurisdictions and Republican-controlled legislatures. Abortion rights activist uh, advocates are coming out of the midterms with momentum, but for their victories, they face the steeper challenge. With abortion now illegal or inaccessible in roughly half the country, they have to keep their supporters energized for a long fight. After winning six out of six ballot initiatives this year, abortion rights supporters are pressing for more, especially in states such as Ohio, Missouri, where their legislators are gerrymandered and staunchly anti-abortion. Yet, ballot initiatives aren't an option in every state. The path to restoring abortion rights still runs largely through state legislatures where it has traditionally been harder to mobilize voters and donors. Of course, that's what overturning Roe did, was it got it back to the states, which is what we knew. We knew that if Roe was to ever be overturned, that the fight would go back to local and state municipalities. And so the goal there was to get it back to the states. States like Tennessee would go all in, restrict. But that doesn't mean our fight's over. There are certainly folks still in Tennessee that want to see that watered down. Uh, but, but then you have states like California and New York that are saying, hey, we're going to do all the abortions. We're going to make it abortion tourism. We're going to do this. Then you have small municipalities around the country that are doing, uh, you know, safe havens and, uh, and, and saying no abortions will happen here. And so uh, we'll see what happens moving forward. It says now, it now says this, now more than ever, I think our supporters and voters in general feel they have a role to play in protecting abortion access, said Sarah Standiford, the National Campaign's Director for Planned Parenthood. When the draft Supreme Court opinion overturning the constitutional right to abortion leaked in May, she said many supporters felt there was nothing they could do. Now she said, quote, the imperative is to really engage individuals in a way that they not only feel less helpless, but are less helpless. The challenge and opportunity there is to continue to ensure that there is a path for every person to take action, end quote. 
But the anti-abortion side, that's us, the the pro-life side, is not stepping back from the fight either. Of course not. Last month, anti-abortion groups filed suit in federal court in Texas seeking to overturn the Food and Drug Administration's approval of abortion pills. At a meeting in the National Association of Christian Lawmakers outside Dallas after the election, the director of state affairs for Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America, an anti-abortion group, they always got to throw that in. You got to love that steered the lawmakers in the audience away from more ballot initiatives. Instead, she encouraged them to focus their energy in upcoming legislative sessions on making it harder for doctors to provide abortion pills and on establishing the strictest possible gestational limits. Uh, It's time to go, she said. You can be as ambitious as possible. Tom Oliverson, a Republican member of the Texas House of Representatives, suggested restricting health care tax deductions for companies that help employees access abortion, including through travel reimbursement or what he called abortion tourism, which is what it is in states where the procedure is illegal. And they go further and further. And so, look, there's no surprise there that that's what we're seeing. And so what they're trying to do is paint these evil pro-lifers, or as they would call them, anti-abortion people. They're trying to paint us as kooky, crazy people, right, that we're we're having strategy meetings political strategy meetings and we got secret recordings of what they're saying and what they're saying is hey you know move back from the ballot initiatives and and focus more on restrictions focus more on maybe tax pulling tax incentives away from businesses that are operating in abortion tourism look here's the thing when they write about planned parenthood and abortion activist meeting they don't they don't talk about it in scare scary tactics. They say, well, the abortion groups are meeting because they care deeply about women, and we just want to give them hope that we still have an opportunity to keep abortion in in our states, and we still have the opportunity to keep the abortion pill in your mailbox, and we're going to do everything we can to make it easier, and we're going to stand with the FDA as they make it easier to get abortion. You see, when, when they talk about the abortion side, they paint them as a wonderful well-meaning women's empowerment group. When they talk about the pro-life side, or as they label us, anti-abortion, what do they paint us? They paint us as the devil, the scary group that's having secret meetings, that, that's seeking to push women back for decades, and that's seeking to have women just pregnant and barefoot in their kitchen. It's all nonsense. It's nonsense. So so when the reason why I bring these pieces up to you on this show. And the reason why, you know, when I when I say, hey, we're going to look at something in New York Times, I'm sure people listening are going, oh, here we go, New York Times. Why am I going to listen to anything they say? I bring it up to you because I want you to see. And I want you to read it in a way that you can discern, oh, this is the narrative. This is the agenda that they're pushing. You see, when when conservatives, when pro-lifers have strategy meetings about legislation, we're evil and seeking to harm women. When abortion proponents have strategy meetings and seek to talk about and, and think about legislation allowing for abortion, they're held up as some kind of bastion of hope for our country. We have to be able to see the dichotomy there, and we have to be able to call it what it is. It's nonsense. And if we can't read both of those and understand the nonsense, then, then we'll get to a place of going, oh, maybe they're right. And again, as I talked about last week, as I've talked about multiple times on this show, you have to also understand the language that they're using and why they're using the language 
that they now use. And, and, and they, don't, they don't let you know. They don't write an article saying, here's why we're changing language. They just start changing language, and then it becomes normal in our vocabulary. And then we just go right along, and we start changing language. So, so now we don't call them pro-life. We call them anti-abortion because that's what the writers are doing. That's what the journalists, quote-unquote, are doing. We don't call it a heartbeat. We call it electric pulses or cardiac activity. Why? Because that's what the journalists are doing. That's what the, the anchors on TV are doing. That's what the science journals are now doing. Us overnight, they changed language. We don't call them pregnant women anymore. We say pregnant people. Why? Because, you know, that's what the journalists are doing. So we're just going to take our cues from them. No, 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 no. We don't take our cues from them. We don't take our cues from abortion activists. We don't take our cues from a culture that celebrates death. No, we we speak truth. We do the right thing even when doing the right thing and speaking truth is difficult. And guess what, folks? It's going to be difficult. And so as we think about where we are as a society and as a culture. The, the reason the Times is writing about this and other, <clears throat> other outlets are writing about this is because in January, many states are going to start new legislative sessions. Tennessee will go into session in January, and there'll be some conversations. I'm already having conversations with folks in Nashville about what that looks like. Is there a desire to water down the trigger law that we currently have in effect? Is there a desire from some politicians to, to get squishy because they didn't realize Roe would actually be overturned and they weren't willing to go all in. They were willing to go all in when they knew Roe was the law of the land, but now that Roe is no longer the law of the land, they're, they're a little squishy. So I'm having conversations with folks to make sure that we are holding people accountable, that we're doing the right thing. But you see, we live in a culture where anyone that would stand opposed... Anyone that would stand opposed to abortion is, is maligned and called a, a crazy person and an extremist. But our culture, if anyone stands in line with abortion at all stages, no matter what, and the government pay for it, you're, you're held up as some kind of wonderful women empowerment, loving of your neighbor, because Everyone should be able to get an abortion. And as a matter of fact, they shouldn't be able to just get one. Everyone should get one. Everyone should participate in abortion at some point because it's so enlightening. That is what they'd have you believe. It, it, again, it's nonsense. But this is why we talk about these things. Because the reality is, bringing it from D.C., so, so Roe overturning and taking it back to the states for... Almost 50 years, the abortion debate was mainly a federal debate. Sure, local politicians talked about it. Local legislatures tried to, to limit abortion, tried to do this, tried to do that. But the reality was, for 50 years, almost 50 years, it was a federal debate. So you would have presidential candidates, you would have senators and congressmen talking about 
what abortion was and it's a right of a woman and should we have the Hyde Amendment? Should the government tax, should tax dollars pay for it? All these things. Well, you overturn Roe and you go back to the states. Now, it's a 50 state fight. Now, half the country has some strong restrictions on abortion and half the country have no restrictions on abortion. And so the question is, where will the scale tip? I talked last week that we've seen a decline in abortion across the country since the overturning of Roe, which we anticipated and hoped for and prayed for. Now, some people would tell you, well, that's only because of these, these, back, these backwards, backwoods southern states like Tennessee that hate women. That's the only reason why you've seen a decline. Well, no, let, let, me, let, me, let me give you a, a window into what's, what's actually happened. Because abortion was the law of the land for almost 50 years, you, you had a generation grow up being told that if you find yourself in a tough spot, not only should you see abortion as an option, you should, you should lean heavily toward abortion. Abortion should be your, your default posture, the primary decision. If you're, if you're facing an unplanned pregnancy, we had a generation grow up believing that. And so we, we had a generation of, of parents and grandparents, if we're honest, that saw it as, you know, this isn't ideal. This may not be what we really want, but also we don't want our child having a baby out of wedlock or we don't want our child having to raise a, uh, her own child. At a young age. And so abortion is legal. And so we're going to allow that to happen. And so for many, it was a cop out. For many, it was a Pontius Pilate moment where, hey, I'm going to wash my hands of this. You know, the law of the land is the law of the land. You take that away with the overturning of Roe. And now, hear me, we have women and men in our communities that are going, I don't. I can have this baby and not feel guilt or the weight of it because abortion isn't allowed in my state. We've actually had patients tell us, well, I'm going to have the baby now because abortion isn't allowed in the state. And it was like a weight was lifted off of them. So the abortion numbers are declining, certainly because of restrictions and because of some other things. But also, I think some folks are coming to realize the freedom in choosing to have a baby. And not feeling the pressure of the community, of the family, of the government to say, go have an abortion. Pick your dreams over your baby. They're feeling the freedom to say, you know what, I, I think I can have my baby and my dreams. And that should be celebrated. We'll be back. Well, that's a, that's a classic. You know, I, I saw something the other day that Mariah Carey still makes every year over a million dollars off the streaming of this song. She could not do anything else for the rest of her life. And that song right there will give her all the money she, you know, maybe that she could possibly need to live the rest of her life because she put out that Christmas song what, sometime in the 90s and it's become a staple of Christmas music. Just crazy stuff. I, I enjoy the nerdness of, of radio and music and it's just insane to me that she 
put that out and still makes a ton of money off that song every year for streaming. As we continue the conversation that we're looking at uh, around the country. So, so we started with the New York Times because they're saying legislative sessions are about to start in January. And a lot of things are going to happen around the country, whether it be restricting abortion, allowing for abortion. But it appears as if some states are going, hey, we're going to pull back on ballot initiatives. That's not going well for us. Now, the reason why some of that is not going well is because in some of those states, the wording of those initiatives were terrible and, and was hard to understand. In some of those states, the money from the abortion industry just outspent the pro-life industry. And so we just didn't have the funds to compete. And so we weren't able to, to share our message, to articulate our message. And so those ballot initiatives lost because people in those states felt like uh, they, they needed an option for abortion. And so what some are suggesting in some of these meetings is, hey, let's move away from ballot initiatives. Let's focus on legislative matters. Let's focus on tightening up our, our restrictions in our state. Let's focus on electing pro-life uh, legislators in the state and local level. And we'll go from there. But look, it's not just states. That's the interesting thing. That's the amazing thing about Roe being overturned. It sends it back to states, but it also allows for, it also allows for city councils, local municipalities to, to do something and put in ordinances that were, would make it tougher for abortion clinics to open. And that's what we're seeing, uh, over in Colorado. So, Pueblo is the new frontier in the nation's battle over abortion. Pueblo City Council is set to vote Monday on an ordinance drafted with help from anti-abortion advocates. Again, anti-abortion. So, so I want you to hear me. I'm reading from New York Times. I'm reading right now from Axios. I'll read from the Tennessean. I'll read from Washington Post. I'll read from you name the outlet and all of them. I've been doing this show for seven years. When I first started doing this show, I would read the same authors from the New York Times, from the Washington Post, from the Tennessean, from Axios. I would, I would read the same articles and they would call folks like me pro-life. And then just one night, overnight, they, they changed it from pro-life to anti-abortion because they got their marching orders from the abortion industry. Hey, those people aren't pro-life, they're anti-abortion. Now, when we say that, that those people are not pro-choice, they're pro-abortion, we don't get the same response. You, you notice they're not writing that those people are pro-abortion. No, because that would make them sound callous, barbaric even. So language matters. And, and so every time we, we go through one of these articles, I want you to notice how they word and phrase things. It's important. Because there's always an agenda and a narrative behind it. So Pueblo City Council is set to vote on an ordinance drafted with help from, what, anti-abortion advocates in Colorado and Texas that would essentially prohibit abortions in city limits. Now, why does that matter? The move is a stark reminder that abortion access is threatened. Listen to that. Even in states like Colorado, where lawmakers codified unrestricted access to reproductive rights into law, after the Supreme Court's reversal of Roe v. Wade. Now, now think about how they're writing this. The scare tactics. The move is a stark reminder that abortion access is threatened, even in states like Colorado, where, where you can go and get all the abortions you want. Even in that state, your rights are threatened. 
I mean, what if they would write a, a, an article and, and say they wrote it about Tennessee and, and said something like, in Tennessee, in, in 2022, they, they stood for life and said, life has value in the womb and outside of the womb, and you will not abort your child in the state of Tennessee. We will not stand for it. And so the state of Tennessee has said, we will stand for the most vulnerable in our communities. Unapologetically so. See, you could write an article like that and champion people that are standing for life, but instead they're going to make us out to be the boogeyman. The proposed measure echoes one approved recently in a New Mexico town, and if successfully passed, could be replicated elsewhere in Colorado. Of course, that's the point. That's why they didn't want Roe overturned, because they knew the fight would go not just to 50 states. The fight would go to the 50 states, to local municipalities, to towns. Ordinances could be passed. Well, then what do we do? If we can't get abortion, what are we supposed to do? The ordinance, which is cleared, which cleared a procedural vote on, in November, comes in response to plans by clinics for abortion and reproductive excellence to build a facility in Pueblo. The, the chieftain reports, the company operates locations in Nebraska and Maryland. The closest abortion clinic to Pueblo is 50 miles away in Colorado Springs. A Planned Parenthood facility closed in 2015. Regina Mastry, the councilwoman who drafted the proposal, has advocated for Pueblo to be a sanctuary city for the unborn and consulted with Mark Lee Dixon, an abortion opponent from Texas, who supported that state's heartbeat bill banning most abortions after six weeks. The language seeks to prevent the clinic from opening by citing an 1873 federal law that prohibits mailing abortion-related materials. The measure would provide exceptions for ectopic pregnancies. Look, ectopic pregnancy is not an abortion. But they've muddied the water so much that now people are, are saying we have to put that into law. Ectopic pregnancy is not an abortion, never been considered an abortion, but yet here we are. The measure would provide exceptions for ectopic pregnancies, fertility treatments, Plan B pills, removing uh, a dead, unborn child, and saving the life of a baby. Legal experts dispute that use of the centuries-old law will withstand judicial scrutiny, and even the city's attorneys objected to the measure. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser says his office will challenge any local ordinance that violates state law. Doctors say the measure would prevent necessary services for women and possibly infringe on broader medical care at local hospitals. Of course, it just says doctors say. You click on that and it, you know, it has a couple doctors. You know, it's, it's interesting to me what we're willing to do and what we're willing to say as a society and as a culture. Because the, the, the article will say, doctors say this, and we're just supposed to go, well, I mean, I guess all the doctors in the land agree with this. No, no, they don't. They, they don't. You know how I know they don't? 80% of OBs in our country do not perform abortions. Now, are, are some of those doctors and OBs okay with abortion? Yes. But they're not okay with it enough to perform it themselves. So again, it's the washing of the hands. I, hey, I'm not going to perform it, but I think I'm going to kick the can down the road and make somebody else perform it. 80% will not perform abortions. And a large, large swath of those people that do not perform abortions would say they never, 
think abortion is okay. But you see, we're not hearing from them. Axios isn't interviewing those OBs. Washington Post not going to interview those OBs. New York Times not going to sit down with those OBs. We're going to hear from abortion proponents. They're going to make it out like every doctor in the country is okay with abortion when it's not the case. And then they're going to paint pro-lifers as some kind of, you know, they're trying to do things behind the curtain with their strategy meetings while they're having their own strategy meetings on the abortion side. I don't fault any of these pro-life candidates, city council, legislators, or otherwise having meetings to decide and figure out how we best can save the lives of the unborn. Have more of those. Have them open to the public. Unapologetically stand for life. Unapologetically err on the side of life. You're not going to regret that. But I can promise you there's going to be people on their deathbed saying, I cannot believe I stood by and allowed for the destruction of abortion to happen and even advocated for it. They'll regret that one day. I promise. We'll be back. As we continue today, look, I want to, I want to, the last segment here, the last long segment, I want to talk about uh, fatherhood and and in particular fathering boys. Uh, You know, I spent the first two segments kind of going, going about what's happening around the country when it comes to abortion and life. And, and, And we can talk all until we're blue in the face about legislation and about strategy meetings and about how we need to handle this politically from our state legislatures to our, to our city councils and, and ordinances and even from, from Washington, D.C. and the Oval Office and the House and Senate, all those things, Supreme Court. But the reality is, if that is all we do, is, is think about politically how we do X, Y, and Z. And if all we do in these strategy meetings is talk about legislation and we talk about restrictions and we talk about laws... And we neglect the importance of, of, of parenting. And we neglect the importance of fathers. And we neglect the importance of gender roles in our society. And we neglect the importance of not removing all roles and all genders and, and lumping everybody together. If we neglect all those things, nothing we do in those strategy meetings is going to work. Again, as we talked about in the past, we are living in a time where where marriage is watered down. The importance of marriage is is watered down. Where where having children is looked at as a instead of a badge of honor is looked at as a a drag on your life and your career aspirations. We're living in a culture that says that. So when we neglect fixing those things, it doesn't matter what we do legislatively. Because our communities are going to crumble without good parents, without good kids. Our our society will not sustain if we do not reproduce. Like, we have to understand that. So there's a piece over at Institute for Family Studies. It's called Fighting, Building, Fathering, Understanding How Boys Play. And I want to go through some of it with you. Trying to discern why boys act the way they do can seem like investigating where wind comes from and goes. But to the careful observer, the common tendencies of boys will show themselves for what they are. 
or rather, boys themselves will reveal what has been at work in them all along, if and when, at last, they become fathers, real fathers. How children play can be considered from two angles. On the one hand, general tendencies in their play can reveal much about human life in general, and more specifically, about the differences between men and women. In other words, something of human nature becomes manifest in the play of children. On the other hand, how children play can be largely determined by the customs of families and broader culture. And from this angle, how they play both manifest and cultivate specific human commitments and valuations that are not necessarily, quote, natural. Bearing this in mind, we should be careful how we analyze their play as well as how we encourage them to play or not. The author begins by taking uh, as given that boys naturally, among other things, tend to fight and tend to build in their play. That is a natural that it is natural implies there is reason and good reason for such tendency. It does not imply that all fighting or building is good and to be encouraged. On the contrary, we can look to discover the deeper reason for these tendencies and therein likewise the principles both to understand and to direct them. Fighting and building can, of course, be opposed to one another, since fighting is often a destructive rather than constructive force. Yet a closer analysis reveals that they need not be opposed, and that in fact they can be integrated aspects of one project. A consideration of fighting and building, both as isolated realities and in relation to each other, immediately raises a larger issue, one in fact at the center of life. What is a truly good human life, and how is it forged? How is it defended? Heady questions indeed, but they are precisely, at least when not undermined or set aside, what the play of boys can bring to the, f- to the fore. Boys see this themselves. They distinguish, quote, good guys and bad guys, fair and unfair, and what is right or allowed or not. Further, in certain instances, boys can find in fighting or building a sense of satisfaction and completion, as in doing something that is truly theirs to do. And here, fatherhood can come into greater focus and in turn give focus and clarity. True fatherhood is generating, in a masculine mode, human life in all its richness and goodness. The most obvious instance of fatherhood, biological fatherhood, implies an immediate call, indeed, an obligation to complete this first fathering by further fathering, or by joining the work of raising the child. Probably more than anything else in a man's life, fathering of children requires him to make concrete judgments regarding the human good. The issues and demands of forming young persons can only be reasonably addressed in a view of a conception of what makes for a truly good human life. We might say that in fathering, more than any other natural role, a man must reckon with who he is and who he wants to become as he considers who he wants his children to become. And this stands to reason. Being a father, which again implies an ongoing and organic reality which can take different forms, is the natural fulfillment of being a male and human person. As surely as fatherhood calls a particular man to discover more deeply the meaning of life, it likewise gives the key vantage from which to understand how and why boys are different from girls and men from women. Every tendency in boys that is genuinely natural or characteristic of them precisely as boys is grounded in order to and explained by that complex reality called fatherhood. As the wise have always noted, nature does nothing in vain. Put otherwise, there is also a reason for what is of nature, and it's a good reason, even if that is not readily apparent. And it's a good reason, we should note, even when what nature intended does not come to fruition. The nature does nothing in vain does not imply that natural inclinations are always fulfilled. Far from it. 
As life experience makes clear, nothing in vain points to the soundness of the natural ordering itself, not a surety of ultimate success. It is not in vain that humans have a liver, though my lifestyle might undermine in me that natural ordination. That's what the author said. I return to where I started. The natural tendencies of boys, and these can be especially apparent in their play, reveal something of fatherhood. Because fatherhood in some form is the reason and fulfillment of being male. The implication here is certainly not that we should let boys run wild and simply, quote, do their thing at play. Rather, uh, he suggests to upshots, two upshots for parents, grandparents, educators, etc., both of which resonate with my own experience as a father of two boys. First, in addressing some of the more vexing, even outrageous manifestation of boyness, we can make an interior shift from what in the world is wrong with this child to how can I discover something natural at work here? This shift could have dramatic fruits in yielding constructive engagements and improved relationships. Second, as a general approach to the formation of boys, we can take fatherhood, its nature, and its demands at the guiding, as the guiding principles. And we can ask, what does it take to be a good father? And then, how do we cultivate this in boys? This connects nicely with the first point. Nature is on our side in the inclinations bubbling up in boys, but we must do our part by drawing out, refining, redirecting, or weeding out, all in view of cultivating in our own sons the ability to build a good life and to become good fathers. Now, had I wrote that piece, I would have said, good dads. Uh, above, above my dad's bed, it, there was always this saying I, I remember reading as a kid, and it said, anyone can become a father, but it takes someone special to become a dad. So, so if you're listening to this and you're a father, or you think one day you will be a father, How are we raising up the next generation of fathers? How are we looking at what our boys are doing and pulling out the goodness, recognizing the, the, the negative attributes and saying, okay, we need, to, we need to recognize this because right now we're molding. We're molding men of the future. We're molding dads of the future. So when I look at my 11-year-old son, I'm thinking about how is, he, how is he going to raise my grandkids? What kind of husband is he going to be? And right now, at 11 years old, what are we cultivating? What are we fostering? And then with my girls, what, how are we showing, hey, this is the man and the type of man you should be looking for? It goes back to, in a, in a marriage... Your desire is that your son would want to find a wife like his mother. And your daughters would wish to find a husband like their dad. And if, if instead they're saying, the last thing I want is a wife like my mom or a husband like my dad, then, then you have messed up somewhere. Like, we need to admit that. Are we setting the bar? Now, for some of us, we're saying, look, no one set the bar for me. If I go by the bar set for me, the bar is on the ground because my dad was absent. My mom was abusive. And so when we think about these things, we have to think about it in terms of the next generation. But we, we can't do that at the same time in society or a culture that says, Men can be women and women can be men. 
We, we can't celebrate parenthood and fatherhood and marriage if at the same time as the culture we're saying marriage means nothing. We can redefine the terms at any point in time. We can't celebrate marriage, parenthood, and motherhood and fatherhood if at the same time in our culture we're saying that, that men can be pregnant as well as women. You see, we, we can't do both of those things. We can't, we can't celebrate parenthood and look to right some wrongs while also telling our young girls that they should be able to abort their babies. You see, we, we can't carry both of those buckets. Culture, in some ways, is trying. It's trying. It recognizes that the, the issue of fatherlessness in our society is damning. But it can't help itself because if it, if it continues to go down that path, then it has to rec- recognize that there's a difference between men and women, moms and dads. And if they recognize that, then their whole system falls apart. That's why we don't take our cues from the culture. It's not up to the culture to celebrate fatherhood and motherhood. It's up to the church to define it, to recognize it, to elevate it. The question is, are we going to do that? We'll talk more when we come back. Well, we could just we could just end the show listening to that. Well, her voice is something. So, as we finish up, look, I wanted to end the show looking at that that piece from Family Studies because we, as a as a culture, refuse to admit the damage that's been done. And and look, I get it. I'm a I'm an old man. Okay, now maybe not by age. But but my mentality is one that is of a pawpaw, and I get that. I enjoy listening to old westerns. My recent books uh, that I that I finished were uh, Spencer's Mountain, which is what the Waltons was based on. Uh, it's a Depression era story of folks in Appalachia, and then th- they did a, a Homecoming, which is the Christmas story of of the Spencers, which again, ultimately became the Waltons uh, in TV form. And there's something to listening to those books. Now, now, yes, there are things that when I hear them say or do, I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, I'm glad we've gotten to a place now where, where we may not say or do those things. But then there's other areas where, where you see the recognition that, that a, a dad is important. A mom is important. Even in, in one of those, uh, in kind of one scene of the book, Spencer's Mountain, Clayboy, which is what, who you would know as John Boy from the Waltons, his dad is cutting a tree down. And the tree is falling toward his granddad. It, the tree falls before they're ready, and his granddad is old and unable to get out of the way. So Clay tries to run to save his dad. And in the process, the tree falls on both of them. And Clayboy, who at that time was like 15 or 16 in the book, runs desperately searching for his dad. And it's a pretty pretty emotional and remarkable scene in the book as Clayboy is, is trying to go through branches and find his father. And he can't find him. He's yelling. He's uncontrollably sobbing. And even the, the, the author says, 
he had to take a moment to control himself so he could try to help and find his dad. But he's playing this through his head. The narrator is talking about what Clayboy is thinking. And Clayboy says, there will be no meaning. What would we live for if daddy is gone? The vibrant swagger, the, the toughness of this man that represents our family. If daddy doesn't live through this, how can we go on in life? And he's thinking about his mom. He's thinking about his Ten brothers and sisters. And the importance of that dad. Now, that's just a book based roughly in truth. But it's striking to me that this young boy, who who has some issues with his father throughout the story, when faced with death of his dad, He loses it because he says, how could I possibly go on if this man of our family doesn't live? You see, there was a time where we celebrated fatherhood. We celebrated motherhood. We celebrated marriage. It wasn't perfect. So you could go through story after story or, uh, you know, whether it be in the news or whether it be in fiction, on TV, or in a book form where dad's messed up, where mom's messed up, where marriages failed. But there was still a point of celebrating the fact that ideally you would have man, woman, husband, wife together in the home with their children. Why? Because that is the ideal scenario. Every data point points to the success of that model. Not just from a biblical standpoint, but from a societal standpoint. Folks that are growing up in that setting have better outcomes, less chance of being addicted to drugs, less chance of being arrested, less chance of being in poverty, less chance of dropping out of school. So we know that the data supports it. Our scripture supports it. So from a Christian standpoint, that is the ideal model. It doesn't mean that other models can't work. It doesn't mean that there's not some great single moms or single dads out there doing the best they can and and raising amazing children. But what it does mean is, are we prepared as a community, as a society, as a culture to look in the mirror and say, you know what, we've kind of missed it here. Are we prepared to raise our young boys to be godly men, godly husbands, godly fathers? Are we prepared to raise our young girls to be godly women, godly wives, godly mothers? Are we prepared to to elevate and say parenthood has great value to our society, that the boys that we are raising now will become the dads of the future? Does that matter or not? Man, I hope we answer that question in the correct way. We'll talk to you all next week.